Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello. I'm joined on the podcast this week by Chris Maybe, who's written for the Church Times this week about the deepening political crisis in Myanmar. In the article, he sets out what can be done to help its people. His book, Whispers of Hope, a family memoir, was published in July by Penguin Random House and is available to buy from the Church Times bookshop. Chris, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Hi. Can I start by asking you about your own relationship with Myanmar? I mean, it's, it's a very personal one, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I didn't know a lot about the country. I, uh, I mean, bridge over the River Kwai and various sort of um, uh, articles and films that were giving a fairly romantic, if if brutal, because there was some Second World War um, histories which are very painful for many families. They lost uncles and fathers in prison of war camps and so on. But but I I did for all that have a rather vague but romantic view of, of Burma, as it was called. I, I, I lived in a sleepy village in, in, on the Kent-Sussex border, and on the school bus I, I, I spotted this eastern princess <laughs> sitting on the back seat and not giving me any eye contact at all. Um, and, but anyway, I gradually got to know her and her family, and um, they, I discovered that they'd left in a hurry in 1962, sorry, 1964, um, and uh, with £100 in their pockets and, and had to get out, really, because the military junta in, uh, in Rangoon had taken charge and it was not a very pleasant place. And so getting to know April um, and her family was just added to the romance, really, because, you know, they were so hospitable. They were probably the only Asian family in in that part of, of Sussex, um, and uh, I, I suppose I had this rather exotic, exotic view uh, of, of Burma, and the family cooked wonderful cuisine, and, and so, um, yeah, that's how I, I began my relationship with, with Burma, really. It was uh, a bit unreal, and um, th- through rather dreamlike lenses, and, and I mean that that dreamlike view you had was um, was challenged, wasn't it, through getting to know April and her family and and visiting Burma? Yes, um, it, it sort of came over the, the the dining table really, in the sense of April's family, April's parents and mother in particular had some r- really good memories. I mean, she had a forensic memory for for events in the mid century, last century. Uh, events in in Rangoon in Burma and I just began to uh, sort of uh, tape these these um these oral histories because they would just seem so precious because there aren't that many in fact there's hardly any of that generation left and they were very happy to to do that and I had no intention of of writing a book at the time but I just wanted to collect the um these these reminiscences because they were so precious and then I guess a turning point was in the mid nineties, April and I had married by then and we had four daughters and they were in there, just about in their teenage years. I, I kept saying to April, we must go, we must go, we must let our daughters 
experienced part of the heritage and um, she was a bit reluctant really and I understand that to get a five a five week trip and um, it was a real reality check actually uh, sure sure enough the people were wonderful I mean hospitable they didn't have a great deal her relations many of whom had stayed in in Burma were, were you know, 25 of them turned up at the airport to meet us you know they, they just they just couldn't get enough of of us and and they from their rather meager resources you know cooked for us every day it was just a gorgeous uh, uh, kind of reunion with her the other side of the family but <laughs> the actual living conditions and security uh, issues in that in that country were 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 really an eye-opener. Um, there was a very visible presence of the military on street corners. Uh, we had to be careful who we spoke to and, and where we went. But, but actually, it was a pivotal moment, I think, in our lives. And too, because they, they experienced firsthand the smells, the aromas, the, the feel, the, uh, hearing stories from, from their, their family, Traveling um, up country, not along the tourist routes, but just visiting places that April remembered. It, it was a it's a real eye, eye opener for them as well, and um, it's almost like dropping depth charges into their lives that that sort of went off later at different times and in different ways. But absolutely um, special that 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 trip. While we were there in '95, um, we had through a friend of April's family, we were able to meet Aung San Suu Kyi. She had obviously come to prominence in 88, um, quite reluctantly really, uh, to lead the National League uh, for Democracy. And um, yeah, we, she'd just been released from house arrest in 1995. She'd chosen to stay at her home on the edge of um, the lake in University Avenue. Bit of a rundown house by then, but we, we just had a very special 45 minutes with her and her, her husband, Michael Harris, and um, just, just talked about the situation that, that she faced. She's she, a striking individual, very clear thinking, very sharp, um, very humorous, actually, and very down to earth. Um, it, 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 you, you didn't feel belittled by her presence. You felt almost the opposite you know she made you feel very welcome and I was just struck by her conviction which comes from Buddhist her Buddhist uh, roots and meditation she had a lot of lot of time a lot of opportunity to meditate and I think that added to her her poise um, and she talked about her hopes for the National League for Democracy um, coming to power and, and, and beginning to move the country towards democracy I mean sadly that hasn't really happened but that was the essence of the conversation yeah you write in your piece for the church times that i mean through speaking to your wife's family and and visiting the country you came to realize that the nation's history was much more nuanced than the media stereotype and what do you think that stereotype was and in what way is it more nuanced well it a lot of it revolves around Aung San Suu Kyi I think I mean as I say she was a reluctant heroine <laughs> she only went back to Burma in 19th 1988 to care for her sick mother but she quickly became fated 
by by the Western media as a as a peace icon. You, I think that that phrase was used in newspapers a lot at the time, and she won the Nobel Peace Prize for her efforts. And she was compared to Nelson Mandela, and even to Gandhi, you know, in India, um, as as being a a way or a person who could lead uh, the country out of the straitjacket of a military regime. You've got to remember that when Nguyen came to power in 1962, it was a military machine that took over the country. And, uh, and unbelievably, really, that it has retained that power, the power being passed from one set of generals to another and to their sons and daughters and so on for 60 years. And, and the other thing to, um, to, to recall is that um, the country, Burma, is actually made up of 120, 130 different people groups, a lot of them with their own language, their own culture, their own history, and their own desire for independence. And, if, and so there's been this internal struggle um, between the Burma, who are the, the dominant people group in the, in the Irrawaddy Basin, and these more rural, uh, far-flung tribal groups who have been seeking autonomy. And so that civil war has rumbled on um, for since, since the 60s. But just going back to Aung San Suu Kyi, I, I think that's an important context because she, she looked like she could possibly bring these different fractured groups together. Uh, and um, her, her popularity looked like it could just galvanize the country in a way that the military had not even attempted. They just ruled by an iron fist. Well, she, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult because things, events recently, I mean, she's now incarcerated, as you know, um, by the current, the current regime on trumped up charges. But my reading um, is that for all her personal conviction, um, fueled by Buddhist pacifism and peaceful change, regime change, I'm not sure she had or ever pretended to have a strategy for regime change, you know, a, a political strategy. It's one thing to have conviction. It's another thing to have the, the wherewithal to bring that into, into, into being. And the National League for Democracy, of course, never had any, any firsthand experience of power. They were always um, the underdogs. Yes, they got, they got parliamentary seats in the in the elections, I think 2011, and it, and it looked like the country was moving uh, towards a more democratic um, uh, state um, with with NLD people in parliament and so on. But but they they never really had, as I say, um, the experience and the expertise to influence things politically. And of course, the military continued to dominate parliament. So I've jumped around a bit there, but what <clears throat> I'm trying to do is trace. Her, her influence, first of all, it was celebrity status. Then it was looked like she really did have political power. She was, she was appointed as state councillor, I think was the phrase. So she wasn't allowed to become president because she had an English husband and the, the junta made, made sure she couldn't get real power by, by making that a, a qualification of, of uh, political uh, power um, and state councillor is pretty pretty influential, but not really um, going to be 
leading the country because the, 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 the main ministries for border control, for the police, for the military, um, they were held by heavyweight uh, generals. And um, she, she really was, well, a friend of mine in, 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 in Rangoon said that she was swimming with her hands tied. You know, it was, it, it was very, very limited opportunity. So you've got two things. You've got, did she really have the people around her who could put in place a viable alternative? Probably not. And secondly, did the military really want to give her power? Again, probably not. They were too, too much self-interest in, in the current regime to share it with anybody else. I mean, we're t- talking about the situation in the country at the moment. Um, you write this week in the Church Times about um, how, you know, not much more than a year ago, it seemed that Myanmar was inching towards a more democratic regime. And obviously we had the coup, the political crisis and and situation for the place of you know for the democratic cause is that has that really that's really worsened since then yes i think what happened in well go back to november 2019 there were elections again and again the national league for democracy had a landslide victory so i mean that that gives you an indication of where the people of burma you know the everyday people on the streets they want democracy that they, you know, they're not unaware through Viber and, and, and YouTube and Facebook, you know, that they're, they're very tuned in to what's going on outside now. They didn't used to be, but they, they're very media savvy. So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a push from below, if you like, for, for a, a different style of, of, of government. But I think what happens uh, is the, the junta panicked again. So having seen this landslide victory, they just couldn't contemplate power sharing um, in the way that the elections pointed. And so they declared a, a year of emergency in, on February the 1st last year. We're coming up to the anniversary and it'd be very interesting to see what happens in a few weeks time. And what happened, of course, well, I say, of course, the people of, of Burma, and I'm, I'm generalizing, are, are very peace loving. They're, they're very benign. It's like the Buddhism, and 90% of the population in Burma are Buddhist, at least nominally, if not quite actively. And that's suffused into their mindset. And, 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 and so compassion, kindness, you know, um, reverence for your leaders, these are all part of their mindset. And so they're not a kind of a revolutionary type of people, but, but, but they're, they're, their patience snapped again, as it has done a few times in the past. Um, it, uh, last February, um, and the people were out on the streets, uh, the students, civil, civil servants, teachers, doctors, they were, they were just saying, no, you cannot get away with this. And of course, the reprisals were, were brutal, as we've, we've had a few headlines coming through, you know, um, that the military were gunning them down. I mean, first of all, it was tear gas and, and rubber bullets, but it actually became live ammunition. I think I mentioned there's a, a very poignant story of a, a lady we met in this country who managed to get out last March. She was marching in the streets with all her neighbors and friends, young lady in her early thirties with two young children, protesting. And you've, we've seen a few pictures of those in the news. And then the next minute, the person beside her slumped to the ground, her friend, shot. 
and and she froze and well as you would i mean you panic the next minute she she's aware that she's being shielded and in the bushes on the side of the road and told to keep down you know you, you imagine the the horror of that the visceral reality it's not just statistic it's it's your friend and and as she said to us you know they were shooting at people's heads i mean this is the unfathomable brutality it's very difficult to comprehend how how hatred could drive you to shoot a fellow countryman unarmed in the head i mean it, it, but it says it all really i think the paranoia the, the 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 fear of the junta but also the because they're heavily armed and and they're probably being well we know they're being supplied from china and russia with with um uh weaponry so yes that that has rumbled on through this year and and i mean as i say it's not about statistics but just to give you a feel that over 1300 protesters have been killed since february and and thousands uh, a figure has i mean I'm, i try to keep up to date with the news 8000 it's estimated are incarcerated in prison or or awaiting trial and aung san suu kyi as we as we hear um, has been imprisoned for petty charges like having walkie-talkie machines that she shouldn't have and stuff like that so yes it's it's a dire situation Ed, and um it can't overstate the brutality of it. Well, what would you make of the UK government's and, and the wider international community's response? Well, yeah, it's it's um, there's lots of words, but not lot, not a lot of action. I think is my summary of that. The UN have tried to intervene, but um, the way, really, the only way they can do that is by being unanimous. Um, in their <clears throat> mandate, and of course, I say of course, but it does stand to reason China and Russia have continued to block any multilateral intervention by the UN. So there have been there have been overtures, but that's really all they've been. And then there's ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is quite a powerful economic block in in Southern Asia. But again, I'm afraid. They have been notably ineffective in influencing the government in uh, in, in Myanmar. The, the, the Cambodian, the, the new president of ASEAN is Cambodian. He's been to visit. He was criticised actually for visiting and giving legitimacy. And this is this is part of the problem. We all say, "Well, come on, negotiate," but negotiation requires two parties of reasonably equal. Um, status and power and of course it's very very one-sided at the moment um, and if you do start uh, dealing with the junta you know you get criticized because it's it appears then or they they sort of take credit for being the the the, the government in power yeah which is why I say the end of this month will be very interesting to see what happens so the year of uh, emergency uh, comes to an end. So, in a sense, the next move is in is in the hands of the junta. Are they going to extend that state of emergency, um, or are they going to take more notice of the election results? I doubt it, but 
you know so, so it's it's really an open question as to what happens next um and i mean you ask what can we do i i mean i've written to my mp and i i'm sure many have as other people who are following the story in burma have as well just to urge them to uh, make this a more of a priority to bring the 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 perpetrators of evil to account. I mean, they are crimes against humanity. They are, you know, the, the, these people need to be held responsible. And and the government, the British government has actually imposed sanctions on some of the individuals. And that's a start, you know, limiting their financial um, maneuverability and so on. But um, I think it needs to go further. I believe that the West, you know, can can be influential, but they've got to be single-minded about it and really, uh, as I say, multilateral to work in co and co cohesion with each other to actually bring about change. I think it's possible, um, but it's uh, it's a tall order at the moment. I was also wondering about the plight of Christians in in Myanmar and and other religious minorities. I mean, uh, we we hear things about it being really really difficult situation. Actually, I'll just mention that, that there's a really, really excellent report by CSW. Christian um, Solidarity Worldwide, yeah. That's right. They, they, they published a report, I think, about two years, about 18 months, two years ago. It's a very thorough answer to that question. But if I just give you a couple of headlines, as I said, about 90% of the population are Buddhist, and there's probably 8 9% who are Christian. Or professing Christianity, and some some Muslims, a minority of Muslims, and by the way, those Christians, a lot of them come from the ethnic groups in more rural areas up country from from Rangoon, and we have we have missionaries to thank really for, for, for who, who very sacrificially in the last century and the century before went out as uh, um, as missionaries, many from the Baptist Church um, and slubbed away uh, against animism, against Buddhism, against um, uh, what's called Nat worship, which is worshipping the, the sort of the spirits of the forest and the spirits of the, uh, the rivers and so on. And um, many, many people became Christians. But uh, it is very disproportionate. So, so the Bama people are primarily Buddhist. And, and what's happened, I mean, Jeff, Generally speaking, there's good relationships, but so so I have to add that a caveat. But from a government perspective, a lot of Buddhist monks are in power, or, or, or are influencing the the military, and they frankly are issuing hate speech. I mean, I've had the CSW report reports on one of the leading monks on primetime breakfast TV saying uh, that Christians should be killed. Now that's extreme, um, but it's coming right from the center. Um, and there are, I mean, a lot in the trail of that, there are lots of petty, but, but infuriating um, kind of um, infringements on, on Christians, just making their life a misery. Um, telling them to take down crosses, telling them to build, build um, Buddhist uh, temples, um, disrupting their church services. Um, you know, I, I could go on, but, but, but it's not easy 
for Christians. I mean, we've taught in a, a small Bible college, my wife April and I, that's why we've gone back over the last 10 years we've taught. And that's in a, that's in a Buddhist uh, um, district of north of, of Yangon, uh, of Rangoon. Again, there's just this petty interference um, that uh, just making life difficult for the college even though the college have, have, have worked really hard at building relationships with the locals, bringing the, you know, cooking Christmas dinners for all the kids and, and, and just, just being as, as kind and outgoing as possible. But um, there is this niggling resentment, I think, and misunderstanding of, of, of Christianity. And uh, life is tough for, for Christians in, in Myanmar at the moment. Yeah. Perhaps just finally, um, your, your book's called Whispers of Hope. I mean, what, what are some, some of those faint glimmers of hope you yeah, see in, um, in the context of this really what, difficult situation? Yeah, what, what we've done over the last 10 years, um, as we've taught at the college, we thought we've also taken time out to talk to what I would call millennials, you know, girls, guys in their 20s and 30s, and... It's just really inspiring to hear them talk. A lot of them have been educated outside of Myanmar. I mean, education is, is very piecemeal, very patchy um, in, in, in Myanmar. And so what Prospect Burma, which is a charity based in London do, and many other agencies do, charities do, is to actually give scholarships to, to students who've got perhaps the first degree, but now need um, further expertise and training, particularly critical thinking. This is something that's really missing in, in Myanmar. And they give scholarships to people who, who are intending to go back uh, to their country, to their, often to their, the district they came from. And well over 2,000 over the years, last 30 years, of these alumni are back in their communities working locally and diligently bringing hope to because through their education I mean just to give you one example um, one person I won't mention his name because he's actually in danger but um, he trained as a doctor because there was very little health awareness in in his in his particular people group and and you know people would die of just what we would call fairly ordinary things like dysentery or whatever. Um, and um, he, he was just appalled by this and managed to get um, the training he needed in different countries, including in the UK. And he's gone back and, and uh, set up clinics and, and, and if you like, reproduced himself just at, at a basic level. But that, but that is so crucial for the health and vitality of, of those, of those communities. So that's that's, if you like, the book records many of those conversations and they, and they do inspire me. And I, I, I do think a key, although it's a longer term key, it's not something that's going to change things overnight, is education. Because when people learn about other religions, learn to respect uh, what, what belief and then also become critical in their thinking, um, proficient in English, uh, we may say, well, why should they learn English? But, um, you know, that is the universal language, particularly when it comes to education. And, um, you know, that's where 
re regime change, I think, really can happen because you've got educated people, they've 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 experienced other other belief systems. You know, they are uh, aware of strategies for change, and they have the youth and the energy and the the um, you know they they've seen what can happen elsewhere, and and they are able to bring that into their into their home communities. That I think is my the hope that burns brightest. I mean, I also would add, and I don't mean this to be a secondary thing, prayer. I mean, I really, you know, I've been really struggling with, with, with Myanmar and prayer. Where, where are you, God? <laughs> Why are you allowing this to happen? You know, surely now is the time to intervene. And I've been thrown back into the Psalms, Psalm 5, for instance, talks about this. Um, the psalmist talks about the about the um, evildoers and and just getting away with it. It seems, but then we get the, the scriptural truth: God sees. He doesn't just see, but He cares. He doesn't just care, but He intervenes. And so, I think real change is coming. I really believe that as people, as brothers and sisters throughout the world, come come to God and say, "Please, please intervene." bring these perpetrators of evil, evil to account, sweep them away and, um, and, and bring justice to, to that land. That's my prayer, that's my hope. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.